Hi, I'm David Corton. I'm a member of the Club of Rome, have an MBA and PhD degrees from the Stanford Business School, and I'm a former Harvard Business School professor. I've lived and worked 21 years in Ethiopia, Central America, Philippines, and Indonesia on a mission to end global poverty. Moved back to the United States to New York City in 1992 and set up my office between Union Square or on Union Square between Wall Street and Madison Avenue to devote the rest of my life to educating the world to the devastation I observed being wrought against Earth and the world's people by the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, capitalism, Wall Street, and transnational corporations. I subsequently wrote the international bestsellers when corporations rule the world and the great turning from empire to earth community. My other books include The Post-Corporate World, Life After Capitalism, and Change the Story, Change the Future, A Living Economy for a Living Earth. My current work centers on advancing a global transition to an ecological civilization for a 21st century world. We will be discussing these topics and more in the days ahead. Welcome back. This is part three of my interview with David Corton. He is an MBA and PhD degrees from Stanford Business School. He is the co-founder of Yes Magazine, president of Living Economics Forum. He's the author of multiple books and a leading voice in economic and social justice, critical corporate globalization, and one of the most visionary thinkers of our time. And before we jump back into that, I want to remind you that this episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you by MagCast. That's M-A-G-C-A-S-T. Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Whether you're a coach, a content expert, or an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if there was a proven way for you to increase your, both your perceived authority and your professional stat status in the eyes of your market? and got to do that all at once. Well, this is your way to go from being invisible to getting meetings with anyone you'll want. Simply go to magcast.co, that's M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot co, C-O, where first-time publishers are creating thriving magazine businesses. All right, welcome back to my fabulous interview with the amazing David Corton. Uh, we're very privileged to have him on the show. This is a guy who has traveled the world, who has been uh, economic force and, and changing the way that we're looking at the world. And we were talking about really about organizing cultures around community uh, and being community thinking uh, when, in the context of a global community versus organizing things around the GDP and making money. And that we as humanity are, uh, we are a species of choice and that we can choose something else, but we're also pretty, pretty addicted to our systems and the, the systems we have. And then comes along something like COVID-19, a pandemic. Um, interestingly enough, uh, reading stuff around this uh, a lot, of course, because everybody's sort of living in this milieu of this this conversation but nonetheless um when you look back at the spanish flu and the technology used to control it the technology was to put the infirmed outside in the sunlight 
And the other two main things used were asking people to wear masks and to keep some physical distance. We haven't really come along very far, have we? As advanced as we like to think we are. Um, we're maybe not pushing people out into the sunlight, although there are certain orange people in big white houses who suggest that. Um, but we've not really come very far. So first question, just because we, it's going to lead me to somewhere else in a bit. But do you think it's possible, and I want to address this, do you think that COVID-19 is engineered or was engineered? Do you think it was a um, bioweapon? Unknown. Well, Unknown. it may be a bioweapon of nature to try to get <laughs> attention. <laughs> I meant of man. <laughs> yeah. Not of man, no. Right. So with that, do you think, do you believe that, because <clears throat> a lot of people who, who, you know, who tend to think our way in the context of the world, because the truth of the matter is, I believe anyway, uh, we, we may be insanely destructive, but no matter what we do, this planet will survive. We just might not. We might not. And we might do a lot of damage in the process. Do you think that, or do you believe that COVID-19 might be, the pandemic might be a global reset of some kind? Well, I think that, I mean, the global reset would, would fit with the idea that nature is trying to get our attention. Um, mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, the body mobilizes to get rid of cancer cells or to get rid of yep. infections the best it can. So, um, we have become like an invasive species on Earth, so Earth may well be organizing to uh, uh, to get rid of us. Um, now, in terms of whether Earth can recover, um, mm. if we simply expire as a consequence of the sort of environmental damage we're creating now, uh, Earth will recover, but it will clearly probably take a, a few hundred million years or billions of years. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I believe there is some intention to the unfolding of, of creation and uh, evolution, but, but creation, the whole of the unfolding of the universe it actually, the way science tells the story, it's not that different from Genesis. That it starts out with, with nothingness and an, uh, 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 an explosion of an energy cloud, which then continuously organizes toward ever greater complexity, beauty, awareness, and possibility. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's just chance. <laughs> It's no. certainly not an outcome of, you know, purely mechanistic processes. So we're part of that process. And I, I, I guess I feel like we have a responsibility to not set it back by a few billion years, um, <laughs> particularly when it is within, totally within our ability to, uh, to change that outcome. Um, that just as we have become destroyers of life and destroyers of the ability to Earth to sustain life, uh, we can become Earth healers and ultimately facilitators of its continued creative unfolding. 
But in terms of whether Earth will recover, there is also, I think we do have the technological capacity if we sought to use it to prevent Earth from recovering. I mean, that would be within our, uh, our, our nuclear capabilities. Yes. Uh, we could have a nuclear Armageddon that could totally destroy the capacity of Earth to regenerate on this planet. Um, that would be the ultimate tragedy. Uh, presumably life would ultimately appear on some other planet if it hasn't already, but uh, we don't know that. And I, I, I think we have a, a huge responsibility. So I, I, I do get a little impatient with people who say, well, it's, it's no big deal. Earth, Earth will recover after we're gone. Um, but I, I also, you know, I've come to kind of appreciate life. Um, sure. There is, is such beauty and, and such joy when we get it right. And uh, I, I, I think that's in, intended. But, you know, it's really interesting because, of course, the young people, you know, and, and when I say the young people, I want to be really clear. I'm not just talking about Gen Z, which are the young people of today. But, you know, when I was a kid, yeah. The young people were the baby boomers, you know, yeah. there's always the young people, right? And, and the young people are the ones who tend to care more about these things. And the, and the much older, everybody else in between sort of feels immortal and, and just wants to consume. Well, the rest, you know, what, as you realize, as you, you know, once you get past a certain age, I know that you understand this is that there's a place where you go, Hey, I'm not going to live forever. Um, my impact is important and uh, what am I going to do to have a positive impact? And meanwhile, young people are looking and saying, how can we make it better? But the, the, the largest majority of people that are everywhere in the middle, you know, they're, they're over 20 and under, under 60 and they're going, yeah, I just need to get a bit more stuff and then we can do something. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually want to challenge your, your, your good. Fantastic. Um, the way I think about it, the, uh, when you're in your middle years, particularly within our current society, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly within our current economy, um, yeah. you know, you have an obligation to support your young people and increasingly, yes. um, they may be also have obligations to take care of their, their elders. Um, those folks are necessarily focused on money and making money in the current economy uh, to fulfill their obligations. So I, I tend not to dismiss them for that because, you know, most people in that situation these days uh, do not have a lot of extra income for oh, absolutely not. frivolous consumption. I mean, clearly there are people who are engaged in frivolous consumption, but they tend to be the, the, the you know, in our current situation, kind of the super wealthy. Right. Um, but we're, we're, we're literally destroying the middle class. I, I grew up thinking everybody was middle class, that that was just the way things were. But uh, Well, it's part of why I fell in love with America as a kid, yeah. being born in the UK in abject poverty. And I looked at America and I just saw this, place that was really the most fertile ground for 
entrepreneurship and therefore potential for middle class living. Um, and you know, I, I'm still, I think I'm still romantically in love with the idea of America yeah. rather than what it is. And, you know, and, and in the context of that, one of the things you said in your, in the article you wrote for the international science council, which I think is a fascinating piece. And I want to recommend everybody to go, go look at it. You can find the international science council and look it up. Just look for David Corton's name and you'll find it because one of the things you said in there, you said that by estimates of global footprint network, humans currently consume one point, uh, consume at a rate of 1.7 times what the earth's regenerative systems can sustain. Explain that to us because I don't think people, again, it's another one of those where, what do you mean to, yeah. you know, help, help people grasp that? Well, this comes back to understanding living systems and understanding that the systems by which earth Earth continuously cleanses and replenishes our, our fresh water supplies, mm -hmm. replenishes our soils. And of course, the science is showing that, you know, we're on a path toward essentially eliminating our fresh water and our, <laughs> and our soils. Um, but, you know, and, and the cleanliness of the air and the stability of, of, of the climate, these are all essentially products of living systems. Now, each of these systems has a, a capacity. Uh, and, and this comes back to, um, you know, you've mentioned the Club of Rome, the thing that Club of Rome is, is known for is the limits to growth study, which yes. basically, I mean, got huge, it got huge attention at the time, but it's, it's again, one of these simple, obvious facts. We live on a finite planet. The systems that we count on to regenerate our air and soils and so forth are all finite in their capacity. Now, the more we abuse these systems, the more we literally destroy their capacity to regenerate that on which we absolutely, our very existence depends. So, you know, the, the estimates of the global footprint network are, are estimates of um, how much pressure, how much demand we're putting on these systems relative to what these systems can sustain. You know, that we're using fresh water faster than Earth can regenerate them. And as we overpower these systems, we kill the systems. We, could, we destroy their capacity to regenerate. So that's why we get into this issue of we have to become healers <laughs> and build that back up. But then you, you, know, you look at with, within that, we also have a society in which a very, very few people uh, have, you know, have literally billions of dollars, uh, have you know, some of multiple yachts, multiple massive estates, um, yep. you know, live far, you know, I can't imagine living like that. Can you, can you imagine okay. every, you know, every week you're moving to a different place and you're, you're never just kind of settled in place and getting to know. Well, I, th I, I can imagine that if I'm in my twenties and it's exciting, but, um, but I don't think about it in, in the context of anything other than 
my little cellular life of maybe the people closest to me. Um, if I was living at that level, uh, I'm pretty disconnected from the world yeah. as a general sense of the world. You know, there was a, a great uh, meme and it was, it was David Geffen, um, who's a very, very wealthy man, um, took a photograph from his helicopter of his yacht <laughs> in the water and said, um, isolating from, uh, from COVID-19. Like, could you be a little more tone deaf? Could yeah. you be a little more out of touch? I mean, he took it down and he got enormous amounts of flack for it, but <laughs> like, there's so much of that that is going on there. So it, you know, you, you talked about, you brought it up, which was the limits of growth, which is very much part of the Club of Rome piece. And I want to talk a little bit about Club of Rome because I think it's important because um, as you mentioned, you know, I brought it up before in the context of there's a lot of conspiracy theories around, around not only them, but the Bilderberger group and uh, uh, Foreign Arms Roundtable, uh, the Committee of 300. There's all these different groups. And when you look at the, um, all of them, they contain certain things that are common threads like New World Order that uh, um, Bush Senior talked a lot about. Um, and it is one of those things that is sold on the idea of uh, benefiting the world and ends up not, uh, we talked about solving problems and creating far bigger problems because it's a hierarchy thing again. Um, and it, it relates into uh, the Fed and fiat and all those kinds of things. Um, and then, you know, that whole thing around the Club of Rome and uh, this became the, uh, the idea of uh, useless eaters, population control. Mm. Is, is that the solution? Population control is, is the solution to put it in the hands of a few um, with the belief, with the trust that they... You know, even if it's you, right, that they care more than others and therefore we should let that system take place? Because that's got to be in a lot of people's heads as they're listening to us. Okay, you covered a lot of ground there. I know, you unpack whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the different groups that you organize, that you referred to, the, the, the only one I have personal connection to is the Club of Rome. Right. Um, and Which is I, 1968, right? When it started? Is that right? Well, yeah, it's it very good. When it, yeah. I think that was when their first meeting was. When it yeah. became famous was 1972 when the yeah. Mr. Gross study was published, which which basically was a study you know done by the MIT System Dynamics Group. Um, and it is interesting the similarity that uh, the different groups you named, I think it is, they do have in common the idea of a world order um, or a new world order. Um, and, and you could say that um, yeah, I mean, you could you could well say that among those of us who realize that we're on a very bad path, we need a new world order. 
uh, I think the world order that the different groups have in mind um, is uh, probably differs significantly from one group to another. Okay. Um, in terms of the Club of Rome, um, I guess one of my greater frustrations is is the lack of commonality. I mean, most of us agree that it's a finite planet, and we have to uh, we have absolutely have to control our uh, our, our consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, but not even all the members agree on that. The only thing that all the members have totally in common is. I, I think we're all uh, rather independent thinkers. Um, some could refer to it as a club of monumental egos. Um, <clears throat> but um, I, I, at least most of the members that I know are, are concerned about creating a world order that maintains the health and vitality of Earth as a living being mm -hmm. and that provides a, a, a decent, a good, secure human living for every human being. Uh, I am among those who is very much concerned about the human population size. Um, back in, um, in, in the 1970s, uh, I was a consultant through the Ford Foundation to many of the, the world's largest population programs, family planning programs around the world. Um, and one of the things that became very conscious of, and you know, most of us did, that if you give women access to the means of controlling their fertility, they do. Um, yes. And I got into this living in, in Central America. My, my wife was volunteering at a, at, a, at a village clinic. And, you know, the, the women were asking for help to yeah. <laughs> control their fertility. Uh, and we were actually living there when, uh, you know, we had a pope that uh, declared family planning a sin. And yep. the priests were preaching about this is a sin. Well, the women were coming to the clinic and saying, I heard my priest say something that, that you had something here that could help me control my fertility. How do I get that? <laughs> the priest was, was actually advertising for you. Yeah. Didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, you think about it, the, the world has more than enough neglected and abused children. Um, yeah. And, you, you know, we need to create a situation in which every child is a, is a loved and desired child and gets all of the care and attention, upbringing and love that is important to us in, in becoming fully functioning, fully human adults who recognize our responsibilities to one another and to Earth. So that's that's how I think about the population. Well, when you, when you look at that, um, you know, I, I see that machine again because, you know, well, poor countries, they have more children, they can't feed those children, so they need more money, they need more industry to bring them out of poverty, we need to raise the GDP, has been the argument. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, this 
horrible term that really upsets me, which is the useless eater term, um, uh, which has been around around population control, which is people who don't contribute to the, to the economy or don't contribute <laughs> to the world are looked at as these quote useless eaters. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember where that term came from, and it was um, it's part of the population control stuff that came out of uh, different reports that I had read long time ago, which was about, of course, oh, I know where it was. It was in the limits of growth. It's a part of that. Um, and, and I also remember that uh, an article I had read um, from a, mem- uh, a marine biologist who was a member of the Club of Rome, and he was quoted as saying that he believes it's necessary for the U.S. to cut its population by two-thirds within 50 years. Um, and that sort of brings up this idea of these kinds of groups being about um, genocide. And, 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 and I'm not suggesting for a moment that's your, your, your plan, David, um, else we have to shave the beard off and just leave you with a little mustache. Um, but, but is there a way out of this without us having some form of population control. I mean, China did a population control with a one-child policy, and that actually backfired on them in an enormous way because they had a, a, a preference for males, <laughs> which doesn't work out well. Because <laughs> as far as I know, males are not really good at repopulating the planet on their own. So that didn't work out too well. Um, so is there a solution beyond uh, or is that the solution? Is it population control um, as a as an ordained? This is what we're going to do, or is it the free will population control and also acknowledging in that that people maybe are not particularly deep thinkers a lot of the time and don't really consider. Well. Again, the starting point, in my view, is to make the means of, of personal fertility control mm-hmm. as readily available as possible um, and educate in their youth. The other part is, is building a, a, a shared value, recognition of the need to to, to truly care for our children. Now, another piece of it is that one reason that we were conditioned as humans to, uh, to have more children than what would be considered replacement value <laughs> or replacement need was to have some means of caring for ourselves in our elder years when we're no longer able to do that. Yeah, we were an agrarian society. You needed workers for the land. You had kids. And then yeah. you needed people to take care of you when you were old. You had kids. Exactly. Um, so this also relates to, you know, to issues like Social Security and so forth. Yeah. There is also, uh, you know, the positive side. There is the, the, the joy of participating in the, uh, in, in the raising of children. I mean, that's, again, part of 
of, of our, our expression of our humanity. Um, but, but this is where, again, the importance of stronger, strong communities and strong community support systems come in. That it's also true from the child's standpoint, um, you know, there's no way even in a, you know, a traditional setting that a child can be raised by a single female living alone. No. It just cannot happen. Um, it does indeed take a village. It takes a village, exactly. So if we begin to think about true community, um, yes, we have families and then, you know, there are children and they're part of a family, but they're also part of the community. And when you really have a fully functioning community, people can almost begin to forget whose children are actually mine literally and which children are mine figuratively. And I, mm -hmm. I care for both of them. Um, so if we begin to organize the way we can and the way we absolutely need to, then we have that, we have that opportunity. And the same thing in terms of if we have a community that truly cares for its, its elders, uh, th then again, we're not dependent on, I'm not dependent on my children. I am dependent on the children in the village. But then here's the other th part of it, that when we set up our idea of retirement, um, what, I don't know, we set up at 60, 63 or 65, whatever it was, but at the time, that was basically the expected life expectancy yeah. of an individual. So the idea that we have now, that somehow we ought to have 10, 20, years or more at the end of our life, absolutely free of doing any labor. Um, that's ridiculous. Um, and it also brings me back to a recognition that life by its nature depends on labor. I mean, these cells in our body are engaged in constant labor to maintain our body. And, it, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of labor that uh, is um, is very dehumanizing, but um, being... So is it labor or value? No, it's... Because, you know, you're not talking about going out in the street and digging up the road. I mean, you're talking about the just because you reached a certain age, your value in the world didn't go away. Oh, well, that, the idea of valuing us based on our financial contribution to GDP, I mean, that's... Well, yeah, it's interesting, David, because I don't see it that way. For me, value is, so this is one of my direct quotes, value is values based. So what that means is if you value money, then you will only see value in a money way. Mm. But if value is values based and you see it value as adding to a community by, mm. by sharing your wisdom, then that is value. So what yeah. I'm talking about is, sharing value the labor of labor of love if you will this sharing the value and the the idea that that suddenly stops at 65 is insane yes. um uh, uh you know we're back on logan's run 
<laughs> you know, and thinking about, oh, well, you know, you got to 35 and it's time to take you out because you don't add anything to the system anymore. You know, so it's time for you to become Soylent Green. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, well, that that whole frame, of course, assumes that you're that our, our human purpose is to grow GDP. That that's of course. Yeah. That, that's why God created man. <laughs> why I was born because uh, we got to grow that GDP. I mean that. So the evolution of mankind is uh, could be summed up in two words, uh, three words: uh, Federal Reserve and fiat. <laughs> <laughs> According to that evolutionary plan. Yeah. Well, that's part of the absurdity of the economics that we have come to embrace as our, our, our holy grail, our, uh, our guide to, uh, to eternity. And it, it, it's, it's not only insane, it's also evil. Um, so talk to us a little bit more about that, because I want to hear why you, I, I want people to address, why do you think that that's evil? Because... Well, a lot of people Francis, who are money driven are saying, you know, I'm using money for good and money's well, neutral. How we use it is, you know. Pope Francis has pointed out that money is not itself evil. It is the love of money that is evil. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for just the reasons that we've been talking about, because the love of money when it diverts our attention away from, from life and the unfolding of creation, that is the ultimate evil. Mm -hmm. And it comes back to the biblical verse, no, no one can serve two masters. I mean, you're either you're, you're serving life, the spirit of life and creation, or you're serving money. And you know, money can be a very useful tool, but we have to recognize that it's only a tool. It is when we begin to embrace money as purpose that it becomes evil. And, and it's interesting, it's, it's just as we've been talking here that, that this suddenly hit me. Um, you, you may um, recall um, was David McClellan, psychologist, and the uh, uh, the affiliation, power, and achievement motives. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly struck me in terms of, um, of the people, those of us who get caught up in the pursuit of money, we actually can be doing it for totally different reasons. Yes. Some of us may be doing it, you know, the poor need help and I need more money to be able to help the poor. Exactly. In a sense, that's a kind of an affiliation need. Yeah. Mother Teresa raising money to, to feed the poor kids of India. Yeah, exactly. And then I think this is, I think Warren Buffett's motivation is achievement. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for him, he does, he does not engage in flagrant um, shows of extravagance. Right. But every time he gets in an increase in his financial assets, he gets a little charged because it shows I'm capable. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's just an achievement measure. Yep. 
And then there's Donald Trump. Money is power. Yep. And I want money is power. Mm -hmm. There's so well, at least the perception of money is power. Yeah, the perception of money is power. And and you know, in the way we've organized society, it it is power. It's a power chit, man. Mm -hmm. um, you can buy what you want. But I've also, you know, I've come to realize in, in the few relationships I've had with uh, with people of real wealth, including a time when I had some direct interactions with George Soros, um, I've realized I would not want to be a billionaire. No. Their life is in many ways hell. Um, you never know when someone's approaching you, you have no idea. Are they approaching you because they respect and, and admire you as a human being, or they just want to get a chunk of your change? Um, and it's well, this is the challenge, not just with money, but with power. Um, I work privately with a lot of high level leaders, and the number one issue they have is they are not sure why the relationship is going on. Yes. Um, is it leverage? Is it power? Is it money? Is it, you know, what is it? Um, and, and, you know, they will often privately say that they, they don't miss the struggles, but they miss the certainty of a relationship, um, based on, um, subjective interaction with personalities versus uh, interactions with perceptions of, of people. That's a vastly different thing. Mm. Um, and when you and I are in villages in Indonesia or Asia or South America or wherever it might be, and we see societies that, yeah, they have money in the, as in the sum, but they're not driven by that. And we suddenly see, is there conflict? Of course there's conflict. Um, and is some of that conflict around property? Absolutely it is. But generally speaking, there is a higher level of community and a higher level. So like I was born in a, in, in a ghetto in Northern England. And it was, I've had this conversation with people. I think, I think it's a particularly fascinating thing that helped me understand. In daytime, in the daytime, all the doors were open. So on Arm Street, where I lived as a kid, every door in the summertime was open, every house. Wow. Some, of them were, some of them were closed, but not locked. But none of them were locked. Most of them were actually left open, let the air through. Yeah. And everybody's kids ran through and played with everybody else's kids. And when, when it was lunchtime, if I was with my mates and they were over, even though we had nothing, my mom would get another couple of slices of Wonder Bread stick some margarine on it and something else and she'd feed that kid. Yeah. It was very much like living in a village, you know, that, that mentality. But when nighttime came, the door was not just closed. It was triple locked because the burglars would come. Mm -hmm. Right. And they would break in. And so it was interesting because I lived in two worlds. Essentially I lived in this, you're raised by the village. And then this need for need for stuff, which I'm going to break into your house to get to sell so that I can live. 
because I don't have enough money to live or feed my kids. And a lot of the people I knew, and I knew them well, who were criminals, were not bad people. They were people who were not bad people at all. They just couldn't survive mm. in a system. And that is, for me, the fundamental problem is that I think, I believe, and a lot of people get pissed off at me for saying this, we create a criminal environment because we create an environment, as you said, that is run on the monetary system. And when we run a system on that exclusively, then how can people possibly survive when they don't have the opportunities? And so they go to whatever's available and that becomes a criminal activity. Does that make, does that make sense in the context of what you're talking about? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, now the, you know, the, the other thing that we need to deal with is while most people are by their nature caring, loving, and responsible and would much rather have you know a, a decent job <laughs> where they can be assured of a means of living mm -hmm. than being a criminal we also have a certain percentage of the population that are psychopaths absolutely narcissistic sociopaths psychopaths all those yeah. things are very real. Either, you know, some genetically and some by their, their social conditioning. Um, now, what fascinates me is if you, if you look at what neoliberal economics idealizes, they actually idealize the human individual who fits the characteristics of a psychopath. I want to come back to that. We're going to end this section here because that is right there. That's a fascinating subject. So look, looking at neoliberal economics and the way the world is, looking at the Anran model of the world, uh, the fountainhead, uh, and, and the facilitation, I see it anyway, the facilitation of sociopathic, narcissistic, uh, uh, and psychopathic behavior economically at a level of power and as a society. I hope you'll stay with us for part four of my conversation with the amazing David Corton. I'm loving our combo. I hope you are too. I hope it's really opening your mind and getting you deeply curious because that's the intent here. It's always about, you don't have to agree with us. You don't have to think either of us are right. You can think both of us are wrong. That's not the point. The point is to get you to be curious and consider things you've never considered before. My name is Darth Baron. I am the Dragonist, and we'll be back in part four very soon. Stay tuned.